we're finishing up Galatians, okay? And then we're on to uh, five weeks on the Reformation. The Reformation is it's coming up. Uh, excuse me, the Reformation is coming up. What am I talking about? All right, um, we, uh, the refer- 500 year anniversary of, can I say the, what a lot of people would say, okay, if there's an official start to the Reformation, there were centuries of rumblings leading up to it. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But 500 years ago, almost exactly in a week, um, 15, 17, end of October, Martin Luther mailed a letter, uh, and then probably very soon after that, uh, nailed or pasted the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. And, and so we're celebrating the 500 year anniversary of, of really a return to the Scriptures. Um, and we're going to be talking some about Luther, but man, I mean, finishing up with Galatians, right before that, nothing could be more appropriate. Uh, Galatians is one of the books that, in which Martin Luther discovered the Gospels. He lectured on Romans, he lectured on Galatians, he lectured on Hebrews, he lectured on the Psalms, leading up to, in the five years preceding his nailing the 95 Theses. So, so honestly, there's no better way to celebrate the Reformation than, than to finish a book wherein the, the Gospel is so clearly revealed. So I look forward to doing that today, finishing this book with you, just walking through the verses. I, I preached, I was supposed to preach on like half of chapter six last week, and I ended up just preaching on one verse, essentially. Uh, and we talked about how church discipline and discipline in, within the church of God, within his family, is to look like not bone crushing one another's spirits and bone crushing and, and uh, punishing, but rather restoration. Discipline is for the purpose of restoration, and it's to be done in a spirit of gentleness, and today, we're just going to look at verses 2 through 18, okay, to finish, to finish out the book. We can make two errors. Here's what I feel like kind of summarizes this, this text. Um, we can make two errors by either thinking that the Christian life makes no demands on us and should make no difference in our lives. That's an error. Or to think that we can do something to earn God's favor and to be saved. Okay, those are two big errors, other than believe on Jesus Christ, that is, which is faith is like the non-work. It's to say, I can't do it, you've done it, I receive. It's a, re- it's a receiving. So Paul talks about really both of those in this passage, um, and we're gonna start off just by the, with the first one. He blows up the idea that my, as a Christian, my life, you know, God makes no demands on me, and my life shouldn't be different, not at all. Like Christ laid his life down, he now owns you, and your life, you're, new, you're a new creation in Christ if you've trusted in him. So your life ought to look different. And if it doesn't, a grace of God to you is if you have the thought today, my life doesn't look a lot different than the world's. It doesn't look like this much at all. Am I a new creation at all? Or do I just th- think I'm a Christian because I've gone to church or I've read the Bible or whatever it is? So that's, and maybe you're not, and maybe today is the day of your salvation. That's a grace if you feel that way. That's the Holy Spirit working on you. So three points today. Families fight to share burdens. Families fight to sow good seed. And then finally, uh, the last you know, verses 11 through, eight, through 18, the last eight verses, uh, families fight to remember the gospel. Of course, Paul in Galatians, and of course, Paul, period, in one of his letters, but certainly in Galatians, he's gonna finish with the gospel. So that's what he does. So sharing burdens, sowing good seed, and then remembering the gospel. And then, again, so the error, the, error that, the first error we can commit is to say, I can live as I please as a Christian. I believed on Christ, I'm a new creation, he's done it all, there's nothing for me to do now. Not, not at all. Um, not at all. The gospel should change the way that we live. It should fundamentally change the way that we live. Um, so first, families fight to share burdens. If you look at um, verse two here, let's look at verse two. If you have your Bible, um, take, take a look. Paul talks about just that very fact. We should, we should bear one another's burdens, he says. And you know, bearing a burden is not sexy. It's not spectacular. It's mundane. It's pedestrian. It's hard. But it's it's like Jesus, who other than, I mean, who, who bore burdens better than our Lord himself, who literally came to save us in such a way that he came and he bore all of our sins upon himself on the cross. Um, if we bear one another's burdens, so this is a wonderful expression of the Christian life to bear each other's burdens. And to do that, we have to get, I think I mentioned this in passing last week because I really just preached verse one, but to bear one another's burdens, you can't, you can't, I can't bear your burden from here. 
man, I gotta get close, I gotta get in to the mess. If someone has a burden, it's gonna get messy. It's gonna get messy, and we have to get in there close enough to actually be able to help pick the load up with them, get right next to them, put my arm around them, and shoulder that with them in life. And, and, and it's a commitment to saying, I'm gonna get messy because of what Christ has done for me, because he bore my burdens on the cross, and he in me is calling me to bear your burdens and for you to bear mine. And that's what a family looks like, the family of God. So he calls us to bear burdens. He calls us to get dirty. Um, John Stott says, I'm gonna quote him a few times in this sermon. Um, he has a great commentary on this book. He, he says, note, note two assumptions in this command to bear one another's burdens. Number one, we have burdens. So this is not this pie in the sky view of like, once you come to Christ, all your problems are forever gone. Not at all. In fact, you might have more burdens. Christ did when he came and laid his life down for us. And he says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So it, first of all, it's an admission that you're gonna have burdens in this life. But as a family, we're called to help, help each other and to get dirty together and to dive in. Um, as Paul said, when you catch someone in a transgression, he doesn't, he doesn't say, when you catch someone in a transgression, bolt so you don't get dirty. <laughs> he says, get in there and help work restoration in a spirit of gentleness. Get in there like Christ got in there for you, like Christ came all the way down from heaven, from paradise to the lowest place and became sin for us. So we have burdens, and number two, God doesn't mean for us to bear them alone. That's another implication of this command, bear one another's burdens. He doesn't, it, it's not right, God does not expect us in the Christian life to bear burdens alone, so he has made us a family. And part of our expression of that family is to bear each other's burdens. Um, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5 and 6, another letter of Paul. Paul is comforted by, he says, I'm comforted by the coming of Titus. He was one of his friends. Now, notice what he doesn't say. Titus was a friend. He was a brother in Christ. He doesn't say, I was comforted by angels visiting me. I was comforted by an extra long quiet time. Um, I was comforted by um, a vision of Jesus. Now, all those things are good and we can be comforted by those things and Paul was comforted by each of those in turn, but here he just says, look, I was comforted because a friend came to me and he helped bear my burden. He was a solace to me. And so, and more than that, he's, he was part of Paul's family. And so, um, but look, if you go to verse five, so we bear each other's burdens, but then he, he jumps to verse five, Paul does, right? And he says something that seems, it seems contradictory to bear one of those burdens. And what does he say? He says, but everyone must bear his own load. Everyone must bear his own load. I wanna show you just briefly, these are not contradictory things. Um, burden and load, are, first of all, are two different words in the Greek. Um, they're two different words in the Greek. In verse two, again, help a brother bear a burden too heavy for him. And then number five, and then verse five, and all must carry their own loads. So each of us is gonna have, here's, here's, here are a couple facts to unpack this. Each of us is gonna have to give an account before God of our own works in the flesh. Now, I don't mean in the flesh like in the flesh has been crucified, I mean in the body, okay? For our life here on earth, what we do, what we don't do, what we say, and what we don't say. As Christians, forgiven of all, we will give account. That's biblical. Uh, that's part of what Paul's saying here. Matthew 12, uh, 36, he says, I tell you, Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Wow, every single thing done and undone, every single thing, every single thing said or not said, we will give account to God for. That's a fact. He doesn't say non-Christians, he says people, people. Um, Calvin, who he said, who nobody believed in you know, God's sovereignty more than John Calvin, right? John Calvin, he said, um, Lawrence, sorry, that was terrible. That was terrible. You're shaking your head. We have Lawrence. She, she's from France, man. I gotta stop. I, okay, no more faux French. Hey, she's gonna get me. Um, you can tutor me later. Okay, um, he said something like this. He said, God is sovereign. In other words, he's the king and he's in control of everything. What did, what did Charles Spurgeon say? There's not a single maverick molecule in the universe. From the foam, from the uh, spray, the, the fleck of foam that comes off the wave that hits the iron hull of the ship, to the aphid that crawls across the rosebud, everything is choreographed by God, okay? Everything, God is sovereign. If he's not in control of that thing, either he's, 
then he's not God or something else is in control and is more powerful than he is. He's in control of everything. And yet, Calvin said, when we disobey, the loss is real. And when we obey, conversely, the gain is real and eternal. And yet God is sovereign, okay? So God's salvation through Christ, where you can do nothing to earn your salvation, doesn't just, it doesn't just wipe out the consequences of the rest of your life. It means that you stand before God righteous, but what we do matters more, not less. Each will bear his own load, okay? Another way of looking at it is thinking about how it talks about your own story, Christian, your own story. Um, the story that God has mapped out for you before the beginning of time, the good works that he's created for you to walk in, Ephesians 2.10. Um, John 21, that famous, beautiful, John 21 is one of my favorite passages in all of scriptures, the end of the gospel. And there's that famous scene where there's this reconciliation between Jesus and Peter. And Jesus has just taken Peter to the woodshed in his mercy. And Peter has denied Christ three times, but Christ makes him breakfast by the sea. And he brings him to himself and he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Echoing the three times that Peter denied Christ. And he's saying, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And so he's talking to Peter as it were, his arm around him. And, and he says, basically, look, Peter, in the past, he said, you're mine. I have, I, have, I have bought you with a price. I've wed you to myself. And in the past, you've been free to do what you want, but you're, th- this is how your life's going to end, Peter. You're not a, you used to dress yourself. In the end, you're not going to be able to dress yourself, and somebody's going to lead you where you don't want to go. And he foretold Peter's death in this way, because Peter would be, according to tradition, hung upside down on a cross. He was crucified, and he said, uh, according to tradition, I'm not good enough to be crucified like my Lord. Will you please crucify me upside down? Peter's life looked different because of his faith, friends. And what does he say after this? Classic, we know the Gospels are true because they're so unvarnished and honest. And what does Peter say? They record this. like the, you know the Anyway, one of the head apostles, they record him saying, yeah, but okay, fine. That's, man, what about that guy? How's he gonna die? And he points to John, the beloved disciple, you know, like, please tell me his demise is gonna be just as bad. And what does Jesus do? He says, he says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me, Peter. In other words, his story is between two people, him and me. And your story is between you and me. Don't worry about that guy. Worry about your story before God, your load that he's called you to bear. He will not ask you to bear more than you can bear. He has a path and a story for you in particular. There's a great sort of unpacking of this in uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And my favorite of the seven in the Narniad, the horse and his boy, uh, Erebus, he, uh, Aslan, the Christ figure, is meeting with Erebus and having a sort of reckoning. It's, it mirrors John 21. I mean, definitely. And she asks about, yeah, but what about him? What about Shasta? another character, the protagonist, and, and he says to her, Aslan says to Erebus, no one is told any story but their own. And that's just ringing with John 21 truth. Um, beware the sideways glance. It, it steals joy. There's nothing, there are seven, um, seven deadly sins, uh, in according, maybe eight deadly thoughts according to the old church tradition, Roman Catholic tradition, um, Envy, they're all, they all bring a bit of pleasure, at least at first. Think about it, anger, lust, I mean, go through the list. They all bring pleasure. It feels nice to be angry at someone, to judge somebody else, to, uh, to, to lust, certainly easy to think about. There's pleasure there. That's why people do it, but not envy. Envy from the start, there's no joy. It, it, it's a poison. It just sucks the life out of you. And it's the sideways glance, the comparison. I'm so happy until I hear that that guy's doing better. <laughs> It's not that I don't have enough, it's that he has more. Okay, so the sideways glance, beware, beware comparison. Focus on your story. God gives one talent, God gives five talents, God gives 10 talents, and he just calls you to do with what he's given to you, with what he's entrusted to you. So focus on that. It's your story with the living God, and he is fair and he is just. Um, so whether you've been given one or 10 talents, cultivate the plot of ground God has given you. Cultivate your garden, um, the garden that God has given you to the best of your ability by his grace, okay, and through the mercy of Christ. So 
that's, you know, that takes us through um, really six. And, and Paul gives some final admonitions in these next few verses, verses really six through 10, before returning in verses 11 and following to the gospel, okay? So we fight as family to, uh, to share one another's burdens, but we also fight, so, so the next, really the next verses through the end of the book have a, they seem incoherent, uh, not incoherent, but disconnected, but really they are connected to sowing and reaping. Sowing, like the, the, the agriculture, we're not as, we're in a city and we're, none of us or few of us or either none or few of us are, agri- we're not farmers, so we don't do, we don't, we're not familiar with seed and seed time. And maybe we're, we're gardeners, maybe we have a garden. And so you, you know, you know what happens though. You plant a seed and God willing with enough moisture and sun, it grows. You know, it grows into whatever, whatever the seed, whatever DNA was in the seed, whatever plant it's gonna be. So sowing and reaping is really what ties together six and following. Sowing and reaping that result in, uh, sowing and reaping uh, that result in what we do and then sowing and reaping in a way that is believing again, in the, in the, in, uh, th- believing rightly, doing rightly and then believing rightly. Okay, so verse seven, what a man sows that he will also reap. It's, it's an epigram. Um, and you know, again, it's not complicated. Like if you, so we know, it's idiotic to even say this, but we know that if I throw down you know, a kernel of corn or an acorn, um, like corn's gonna grow up or, or an oak tree, respectively, or whatever type of seed I throw down, I'm expecting that plant. You know, I don't, I'm not gonna throw down tobacco seed and expect cotton to grow up, you know? Or I'm not gonna throw down an acorn and expect a uh, mimosa tree to grow up. That's just, that's not gonna happen, all right? Um, but, and yet, what Paul's, in, in, in short, what he's saying here is that yet we expect, sometimes even in the Christian life, we expect that our actions, maybe because we've been saved by the blood of Christ and we have if we've trusted in him, we expect that our actions aren't gonna produce consequences. We expect that if we throw down uh, gossip, peace is gonna grow up. Not at all. Not at all, Paul's saying. Um, not at all. We, we, you know, if we throw down forgiveness, conversely, peace is gonna grow up. That's just the way, it's the law of seed time and harvest. And he says, God is not mocked, okay? Uh, John Stott, again, he says, the Greek verb here is striking. It's derived from the word for a nose. And it means literally to turn up the nose at, the word mock here, uh, at somebody. And so to sneer at them or treat them with contempt. Um, So what the apostle is saying that men may fool themselves, but you cannot fool God, okay? Uh, you, may, you may think that you can fool God and turn up your nose at him and mock him, but you can't. Um, you can't escape the law of seed time and harvest. Um, they may go on sowing their seeds and closing their eyes to the consequences, Stott says, but one day God himself will bring the harvest. And he goes into three spheres uh, in, which Paul, in which he sees this principle operating. The first is Christian ministry. Um, and, and he talks about how, you know, excuse me, he talks about how, look, the teacher is hopefully blessing you with the word of God, with truth. So whatever you're being blessed with as you hear and receive, like bless the teacher back. So in this case, it's, it's me and Paul. As we grow as a church and have equipping classes and so on and so forth, we'll have other teachers and you have parish leaders that are teaching you weekly from God's word and, and leading you. And, and you know, don't just receive. Don't just come and be part of a church to receive. It's not a, cons- it's not a consumer or a spectator affair. It's a family and as you bless what's given to you, that teacher will be blessed and you'll be blessed and there will be a cycle of health and wellness and appreciation and gratitude that's beautiful. Um, and I would like that. And I get that from you, from a lot of you, and it's beautiful. It's so wonderful to get. And so that's the, kind of what Paul's talking about in verse six, pretty simple principle. The next thing he talks about, category two of the three, is Christian holiness. And let me just read this quote from John Stott. He says, this lower nature is in each of us Verse eight, if we look at verse eight, he says, this lower nature is in each of us and remains in us even after conversion and baptism. It's one of the fields of our human estate in which we may sow, sowing to the flesh. That's the lower nature he's talking about. To sow to the flesh is to pander to it, to cosset. it. He uses some old British words here, to middle 20th century. To pander to it, to cosset. it. When was the last time you heard the word, use the word cosset? it? To cosset, it, to cuddle and stroke it instead of crucifying it. How often do you cosset, it, cuddle or stroke your flesh? Feed that, feed that dog, as it were, rather than crucifying it. Wow, I do that too much. The seeds, and I think that I'm not gonna have consequences. Paul says rubbish, you absolutely will. The seeds we sow are largely thoughts and deeds. Some Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder 
why they don't reap holiness. It's the law of seed time and harvest. We understand it, again, with seeds. We understand it in the physical realm. Like if I eat Twinkies, Ho-Hos, and watch TV all day, I don't think I'm going to be the healthiest person alive. I will die at age, you know, God forbid, I will die at age 42 of a heart attack. Like it's going to happen, you know. Um, Conversely, if I eat cruciferous vegetables a lot and uh, lower the red meat intake, unless it's buffalo, um, and yada, yada, and exercise and swim and, you know, hey, I have a much better chance of being healthy. I'm going to feel better. I'm going to sleep better. I'm gonna probably going to live longer. We all know that. It's almost, it's ridiculous to even say. And yet we think that it's different. It's different in the spiritual life. I'm going to sow some gossip. I'm going to sow some jealousy. I'm going to sow some pride and vanity. I'm going to lie a little bit. I'm going to look at some pornography. And we think there aren't going to be consequences. It's just as idiotic as thinking that I can eat Twinkies and watch TV all day and I'm going to be fit as a fiddle. It's not going to happen, okay? That's what Paul's saying. Stop. By the books that we read, the company we keep, and the leisure occupations we pursue, we can be sowing to the Spirit. Then we are to foster disciplined habits of devotion in private and in public, in daily prayer and Bible reading, and in worship with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. These rhythms of grace. We're not doing stuff to get gold stars. It's me feeding on the food that God has given me because I am alive for my Christian life. You know, Levi, baby over there that's cooing, and he's another C word that you don't hear much, but he's cooing, uh, being a baby, and he, he's alive. And that doesn't mean that you don't need to, he doesn't need to eat good stuff. Because he's alive, he needs to eat mama's milk, and he needs to eat, when he gets older, good food and to rest. And if he does that, he'll probably grow. And if he doesn't do that, if he eats rubbish, he's going to get sick. Okay? It's because you're alive in Christ that you need to eat food that nourishes you and fills you. And it will reap a harvest, guys. This is what Paul says. That's eternal. And I'm going to end with that. I'm going to end the sermon with that, so hang on. It will reap an eternal harvest. Um, and the final, so Christian holiness, and then the final thing is uh, Christian work within this category of, of sowing good seed. Verses 9 and 10. Well-doing, Paul says. And he says persevere. Why does he say persevere? Because it's easy. No. He says persevere because you will have need of it because it's hard. You don't, you, you, you want to stop things that are difficult. And Paul knows that it's difficult to sow good seed and to, and to do well, to do good. Um, but he says it, persevere because it's difficult. And he says what? A promise. In due season you will reap. But be patient. Be perseverant. Think of Psalm 1, the, the gateway along with Psalm 2 the gateway to the only songbook in the Bible, the Psalter, the Psalms. And what does Psalm 1 say, Psalm 1-3? It says that the righteous man, the blessed man, the happy man, uh, he's meditating day and night on the word of the Lord. And what is he like? It's like a tree. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that what? Bears fruit all the time, 24-7. He's like a tree that bears fruit what? In season, in season, and whatever he does prospers. So in due season, it's a guarantee. Be patient, persevere. It's a guarantee because of what Christ has done. Because the new heaven, the, the new age has started now with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are in it. And he is coming again. And when he comes again, all the seeds that you've planted will grow up. Even if you don't see them now, they will, if they are planted in the spirit, not according to the flesh, but for the kingdom of God by faith, they will grow and they will produce a harvest that, you, that will blow your ever-living mind forever, forever. Um, Samuel Zwemer, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, 19th and 20th century uh, American missionary to Muslims in Arabia and North Africa. Um, he was famously turned down by the American Missionary Society, which resulted in his going overseas alone. Not a, not a unique story. Um, according to Ruth Tucker, PhD, uh, Samuel Zwemer's converts were, quote, probably less than a dozen during his 40 years of service. And his greatest contribution to missions was that of stirring Christians to the need for evangelism among Muslims. So little fruit in his life. But he was sowing seed. And now, friends, in part because of people like him and work like his and seed that was scattered in faithfulness without growing weary or giving up, um, we have three times more Muslims coming to Christ in the past 17 years than in 
all the 1,400 years of Islam preceding. The harvest has never been so great, not even close, in the past few years, in part because of men like this who saw so little fruit that were faithful. Just continue to walk with the Lord and to cultivate your garden plot that he has given to you. Forget the sideways glance. Persevere. Be patient. It's all of Christ. He will do it. It's a guarantee. You will reap. Maybe not in this life, but you probably will reap in this life as well the fruit of righteousness. And in the next life, you won't even believe it. Um, and you know, we think about our little congregation. Well, first of all, let me give you a simple example. I think about bamboo, all right? I mentioned the tree, the tree in Psalm 1. Let me mention bamboo. Let's stay with the agricultural theme. I didn't look this up, but um, so don't quote me on it, but I believe that there are certain types of bamboo at least that they take a long time to grow up, to grow out of the soil, okay? Like I've heard, I've heard the number four years you can plant a bamboo seed, and for four years you won't see anything above soil. It's growing its root system, which is extensive apparently. But man, I mean, I know you've all probably seen bamboo in some form or fashion. You know that when it grows, man, it grows. Some of you have seen bamboo forests. Um, apparently, it can grow up to 18 inches a day in the fifth year. So again, just a nice, simple example of like, if you don't see growth, again, that tree, that Psalm 1 tree, where is it getting its life from? All the most important stuff that's happening for that tree to bear fruit in season is happening in the unseen. Can you see the roots? They're tapping into that stream, that water stream from which it's getting its life, from which it grows, from which it bears fruit in season. You can't see that. Stay faithful in your closet with the Lord. Stay faithful meditating on his word day and night. Stay faithful doing things, being involved in people's lives in messy ways that most people will never see. Hmm? Stay faithful. It will produce a harvest of righteousness. You think about our little congregation, we're a sapling. Somebody described this a couple weeks ago as a sapling. I think that's about, that's fair enough. Uh, we're, like, we're like a little sapling. We're not a seed anymore, thank God. We're certainly not a mighty oak. We're a little sapling. And, you know, this little sapling, our goal, and you'll, if you come to a Vision Sunday, uh, in, you know, beginning at first Sunday of every week, you'll hear this and more, but our goal and our vision and our prayer and our method is to plant a church every five years that plants a church every five years. So plant pregnant is the two-word crystallization of that, to plant pregnant. And we're part of Acts 29, and they're all about planting churches to see the gospel go forward, to see the king reign. And, and uh, so we're two years in, and, and we have Paul here, and God willing, in two years, he's going to be out Brazewood in, with Lindsay and Tallulah and their, their uh, other child, and who knows how many by then, but uh, God's blessed us with children. And uh, send them out to a contiguous area, you know, Brazewood, Bel Air. God willing, within the five-year window, we plant him and then have another church planting resident come, hopefully, and then uh, he plants within five years, and on it goes. You know, within 10 years, you have four churches. You have two in the next couple years. You have, you have four within 10. Not, those numbers are tiny. And if you run it, I think your 20 is 15, you're 60. If you continue to be faithful, persevere, keep your head down, stay faithful, preach the gospel, love one another, get involved in each other's messes. 60 years, over 4,000 churches. Run the numbers. It's huge. And that's just in this lifetime. That's just things we can see. Think about eternity. The new heavens and new earth. Think about eternity. Um, but part of that faithfulness is taking rest. Rest with the Lord, rest with your family, rest with your body, with your soul, taking regular, regular rhythms, and that's part of what Sunday's about, resting, worshiping, taking those rhythms so that we can go for the long haul, not just for the next 50 years, but think for the next 500,000 years. You know, think in light of eternity. Let eternity be your North Star that roots you and centers you and, and makes you answer the question, well, what decision should I make right now? In light of eternity, okay, in light of eternity. Um, Francis Chan, I, I've mentioned it before, he has that rope, and he has a rope on the stage, and, he, and, he, and he's holding a handle that's painted red on the rope. And then the rest of it goes, like, across the gym, out the door, out to the street. It's just super long. And he's like, this rope is our whole life, 80 years, 80-plus years. And we live, most of us, for this. But eternity, that all of us are going to spend, we're all eternal creatures, either in heaven or in hell, depending on where we are with Jesus. We don't live stupidly in light of that huge, long 500, other 500 feet. 
man, when you, when you, whatever you do with this red bit, when you move it in whatever way, the rest of that rope moves in accordance with what you do. What you do now counts. It matters more than we can imagine. Um, and is this a striving? Not at all. Verse 8, it's through the Spirit. It's the opposite. It's sowing to the flesh that's the striving. Okay? We are resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ and letting the Holy Spirit live through us, direct us into relationships in our work. Okay? Error two, I can do something to earn. So error one, as a Christian, my life shouldn't look any different. It shouldn't affect how I live. False. Paul's just blowing that up. On the contrary, error two, the final error, I can do something to earn God's favor. Okay? God forbid. God forbid. Paul, Paul spends the rest of the book through verse 18 saying, God forbid. That is absolutely false. Of course he returns to the unvarnished, simple, beautiful, powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. Families fight, number three, and last point, to defend the gospel or to sow good seed in what we believe. Okay, so look at verse 11 with me. He says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you. What is, it, what is he talking about here? Okay, there was no printing press. That was what, Gutenberg and, help me, 1453? Is that right? Back to high school? You'll be hearing more about Gutenberg and the printing press next week as we talk about how that helped the Reformation start. Um, class. Uh, but there was no printing press, so Paul wrote his letters, but he didn't even write all his letters. A lot of them he would dictate and to a scribe. Hey, so that was very common in the ancient world um, because maybe perhaps Paul's hand was busy or you know you like to dictate. We still do that today. My dad used to have a, what are those, dictaphone? Is that what you call them? Man, before, <laughs> a dictaphone. Yeah, I bet you had a dictaphone, Papa. Yep, okay, right on. All right, off script. Um, but Paul's saying here, look, I'm writing this letter with my own hand. That's all he's saying, okay? And he's saying, look in what large letters I'm writing this to you. It's a Pauline way of saying, look, I'm writing this myself. It's that important to me. And even possibly look at what large letters. I'm not underlining. I'm not highlighting. I don't have a highlighter. It's, you know, 2,000 years ago. But what I'm doing is writing big so you can see in my own hand, I desperately care as I close this letter that you get this. The gospel. I've been talking about all these things to do, the way that your life should look. Don't you dare, Paul is saying. Don't you dare think for a second that I'm saying to be saved, you have to do these things. No, sir, no man at all. On the contrary, the gospel is that we can do nothing to achieve our salvation, and Christ has done all. But that will have ramifications, is what he's been saying. Um, this is my gospel. This is not a false gospel. It's the only gospel. It's the only good news there is, okay? Um, and then in verse 12, he says, those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, he says, they'll preach something else to you, the false gospel, that you can do this, do that, be circumcised. He says, no. That what they're run by is a good showing, an appearance, a veneer. Okay, look at me. I'm keeping the law. God's impressed. No. And for friends, for most of, unfortunately, so many of us for so much of our lives, and I'm, I'm number one here, we live between these two words, good showing. How much of my life is driven by, and how often sitting in that chair right now during the silent confession time before I come up to preach, am I confessing this very thing? Lord, forgive me for caring about putting forward a good showing. You know my heart, and what you know, which is what is true, is all that matters, and yet I am constantly trying to prop up things that make me look good in the eyes of others. That is all that law-keeping in order to be saved is. It's worthless and worse than worthless in the eyes of God because it might just convince you that you're okay. Dead wrong. Dead wrong. That will send you straight to hell. Okay, and so Paul writes in big letters saying, hey, don't, don't, don't be driven by making a good showing. Um, let me, let me read to you a, no surprise, a, a, a somewhat long block quote by C.S. Lewis in his excellent essay. It closes the essay, Dogma and the Universe. He says this, he says, do not let us deceive ourselves. No possible complexity which we can give to our picture of the universe can hide us from God. There is no copse, no forest, no jungle thick enough to provide cover. We read in Revelation of him that sat on the throne, quote, from whose face heaven and earth flee away. It may happen to any of us at any moment. Friend, do you know that? 
it could happen to you here, God forbid, in this chair. I, I was at a symphony in Edinburgh, Scotland, where we used to live, and in Queen's Hall, and Usher Hall, rather, and uh, one of the guys playing one of the instruments, I think it was violin, just boom, that's kind of what you heard. They were in the middle of Dvorak Symphony, and uh, he just fell over, and they had to stop the whole thing. But hey, that could happen, a blip in the brain. You know how fragile our lives are? Don't think you have another 50 years. You might not. That's presumption. We don't know. We're just alive right now. So get your house in order, is what Lewis is saying. It may happen to any of us at any moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in a time too small to be measured, and in any place, cafeteria, all that seems to divide us from God can flee away, vanish, leaving us naked before him like the first man, like the only man, as if nothing but he and I ever existed. And since, get this, and since that contact cannot be avoided for long, and since it means either bliss or horror, the business of life is to learn to like it. This is the first and great commandment. In other words, what? It's to learn to like the encounter that is coming, that is inevitable between you and the living God. No clothes, no resume, no bush to hide behind, no buddy to come and say, yeah, but he did great and I was with him and I went to this church and I look at, uh, look at all my stuff and I was part of that club and I had this much money in the bank. It's all gone. And you are standing before the all-seeing gaze of God. And what is the point of life but to learn to like that encounter? To say, I know you. And I stand in the righteousness of Christ. And he hung for me on a Roman cross. And he took what I deserve and he gave me his righteousness. And God, it's so good to see you, my father. If you can't say that today, I am pleading with you with everything that is in me. Let this be the last day that you can't say that. Make sure that is a good encounter. Come to Christ. Come to one of us and pray with one of us. Turn to the person next to you and pray with them. Take advantage of the prayer time after commun during communion. I'm begging you, don't leave without getting right with God. Um, verse 12, he says, why do they do this? Why do they try to make a good show and say, hey, let's be circumcised and then everything will be okay? And we can believe in Jesus too, but let's be circumcised as well. Let's keep a little bit of the law. He says, because they don't want to be persecuted. What is he talking about? What is he talking about? Um, two, I want to give you, there are a lot of reasons why um, the world hates the gospel and loves religion. That's what Paul's saying. Let me just give you two. First, the world hates the gospel and not religion because religion does not threaten its autonomy, okay? Religion is, I do this for you, God, and then you give me that. I give you a little bit of a sacrifice, I give you some of my money, and then you owe me a good life, or whatever it is, okay? And it's a tit for tat, okay? It's an exchange, it's a business transaction. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, you've been bought, you are desperately wicked in your sins and deserving of hell, and God came and bought you at a price and laid his life down for you. So now you're his. That's the gospel, okay? Um, so it threatens our autonomy. We have none. No, it's not left, there's no place left to hide with the gospel, okay? We are gods, bought with a great price, okay? Secondly, the world loves religion but hates the gospel because the gospel reminds the world of its sin and what it truly deserves. John Stott, he says, this is too good not to read, friends. Listen to this. He says, and what is there about the cross of Christ which angers the world and stirs them up to persecute those who preach it? Just this, Christ died on the cross for us sinners, becoming a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. So the cross tells us some very unpalatable truths about ourselves, namely that we're sinners and under the righteous curse of God's law and we cannot save ourselves. Christ bore our sin and curse precisely because we could gain release from them in no other way. And this, what he's about to say is, has been a subject of writing and thought over the years. Anselm, 1,000 years ago, wrote a great book called Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became Man. And this was his argument. If we could have been forgiven by our own good works, by being circumcised and keeping the law, we may be quite sure, says Stott, that there would have been no cross. Galatians 2.21. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. 
all of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary, where Christ died. It's there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our, get this, true side. And of course, men don't like this, Stott goes on to say. They resent the humiliation of seeing themselves as God sees them and as they really are. They prefer their comfortable illusions, so they steer clear of the cross. They construct a Christianity without the cross, which relies for salvation on their work and not on Jesus Christ and his work. And he says the attitude in closing of the Apostle Paul was totally at variance with these views. He despised them. The truth is that we cannot boast in ourselves and in the cross at the same time. We have to choose. Only if we've been humbled ourselves as hell-deserving sinners shall we give up boasting of ourselves, fly to the cross for salvation, and spend the rest of our days glorying in the cross. You know, I was thinking about the prodigal son this week, the prodigal son parable that I mentioned in my communion prayer last, last week. And I, I've, always, I've been taught this, and I think, and I've thought this for a long time, that the prodigal son... He wished his dad dead. He grabbed his inheritance. He left and spent it all in wasteful living, saying, screw you, dad, basically. And then he decides, he comes to his senses and he decides, man, I need to go home because as a servant of my father, I'll be better off than here, eating pig slop. And so he goes home and the, the father brings him, embraces him with open arms and showers love and mercy upon him. Come on, son, you've always been a son. But I always thought the turning point of that was when he was, he was feeding pigs, an unclean animal in the Jewish world. And he was jealous of the, of the pigs because he was so hungry. He was like, man, I wish I could eat some pig slop right now. I'm starving and I'm miserable. And what it says in verse 17 is it says, he came to his senses at that moment. And he says, man, I need to go home. I need to go see dad and plead on his mercy. Verse 17, I no longer believe is the turning, the absolute turning point. You know where I think it is? Not where he came to his senses, but a few verses before that, at the end of verse 14, it says that he began to be in need. Can I tell you that that was the beginning of his return? Can I tell you that if you don't see that you're in need, you will not take the first step toward Jesus? If you see your need in light of the true word of God and how fall, how far short you and I fall, you will flee to Christ and you will find in him everything you need for your body and your soul and much else besides. Um, Paul goes on, There's, I literally have a verse by verse of this. I'm just going to make a few comments and then close with a story for you guys, okay? Um, this, beautiful, this beautiful verse um, in verse 14, I can't pass it over, I dare not, and then we'll, 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 mark, we'll march toward a, an ending. He says, far be it from me, let me just read it. He says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What does he mean by this? What does he mean by this? He means that he's by faith, been, he's identified. He's identified with Jesus, okay? Who died to all the things that captivate us, okay? All the things that captivate us. Let me, let me read from Keller. Um, Keller says, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, says this. He says, Paul is telling the Christian that there is nothing in the world now that has any power over them. Notice he does not say the world is dead. Paul doesn't say the world's dead, but dead to him. The gospel destroys its power. Why? If nothing in the world is where I locate my righteousness or salvation, I don't look, it's an identity thing, guys. We tend to look toward everything else, people, the work that I do, my performance, who likes me, who doesn't, for our identity, to, to give us a sense of worth and purpose. And Paul says, I know that God himself, through the person of his son, loves me so much that he came and laid his life down for me. That is my identity. What else do I need? And when I do that, I don't shun the world. It just doesn't define me anymore. So I, fleeing from the world is actually being afraid of the world and letting it still control me. 
I'm nothing down on monks. I'm not dissing on monks, but I am saying, if, let's just take the monkish lifestyle where I'm just piecing out to a cave. And I, I can't handle the world. It still has its hooks in me, so I'm gonna get as far away from possible. No, that's not, what, that's not what the world being dead to me looks like. Nor is it being in the middle of all the glitz and glamour and, uh, and, and temptation of the world and just letting it pour into me and, and get its hooks in me and living just like everybody else and letting it define me. That's not it either. It's not being out of it and it's not being in it and being totally affected by it. It's being in the midst of the world but not letting it define you, not having it define you because you know your worth is hooked into the person of Jesus Christ. God says this about you. I came for you to rescue you. I love you that much. You're this desperately wicked. You cannot save yourself and you are this amazingly loved. Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying, and that's what Keller's helping us see. There's nothing else that I must have so that I can actually be in the world and love the world and engage and be salt and light scattered throughout broadcast as his people. Um, let me close with a summary and then a story, okay? Okay. The summary is this, what we've just looked at, verses 11 through 18, Paul is saying, there is nothing that we can do to be saved. It's all been done by another, his name is Jesus. And then verses one through 10, those who understand this fact, that there's nothing we can do to be saved, it's all been done through Christ. If you understand that, okay, um, you will do a lot. And it will look like working, your life will look like working hard to, toward restoration in a gentle spirit towards sharing burdens, towards sowing good seed in what you do, okay? If you believe there's nothing you can do to be saved, okay? You're a new creation in Christ. You're a new creation in Christ. That's what defines you. The old, the world no longer has its hooks in you. And that works itself out over time. It's not perfect. We confess those imperfections in the way that we battle the world daily. But it no longer defines you. That's been buried and he's risen in you with him by faith to a new life that's untouched by all that stuff. And it's gonna go on forever. In other words, there's nothing we can do to be saved. It's been done. But once we are saved, we will do a lot because we're saved, because we're new. Um, let me close with a story. It's a, it's a story by J.R. Tolkien. Okay, I'm just, going, I'm just going Anglophile this morning. Lewis Tolkien. Uh, I had like a whole other Lewis quote. And I, said, I just said the word another. I had a whole other Lewis quote. You would not be, you'd be amazed how many people say the word another, by the way. Wow. Not a word. Um, it's a story, it's a little known story, thanks Levi, um, called Leaf by Niggle. That's, a, that's the name of the, it's a short story, it's 17 pages long in my publication. It's called Leaf by Niggle. And in short, what is this story about? Story by Tolkien, and it's really about work. It's really about what we do on this earth here. And the word niggle, the character is niggle, he's the protagonist, and, and uh, He's an artist, and the word niggle itself means if you, if you niggle about something, you, you make a big fuss about inconsequential things. And his whole life, he is focused on painting a tree. That's his entire life summed up. He just wants to paint this tree, and he wants to paint it so perfectly, and he's always getting interrupted, and he feels like he's not getting around to it, and he's not making any contribution. He's not doing any work that's worthwhile in life. And in the end, it basically says that before he's taken to go on this journey, which is death, to go meet his maker, he basically got, he was really good at leaves, at painting individual leaves with all their detail. And it was a, paint, it was a canvas that was like the whole side of one of his, of his house. You know, he had a big ladder and he would, and every time he got up to the top, he'd paint a leaf and then somebody interrupt him. That's the way life is, isn't it? Ha, huh. yes. And so I just wanna get back to making contributions. Oh, I gotta be, I gotta go serve this person again. I gotta go wipe this baby butt again. I gotta go, you know, do this. And all the moms are laughing, yes. And uh, dads too. And so he finally gets called and it says basically, look, he, his life contribution was he painted one leaf. It was a really good leaf. It's really well done. And man, he just felt like his whole life was a waste, especially the parts where he was helping other people and getting interrupted. And he did some self-sacrifice, but he also did some complaining. And what the beautiful thing Tolkien says, man, he gets to the other side and he gets put right in some ways, but basically he's taking this bike journey and it says this, he's taking this bike journey, he gets put on a bike and he's rolling down this hill into a far green country. It was green and close and yet he could see every blade distinctly 
He seemed to remember having seen or dreamed all of that sweep of grass somewhere or other. The curves of the land were familiar somehow. Yes, the ground was becoming level as it should, and now, of course, it was beginning to rise again. A great green shadow came between him and the sun as he's on his bike, right? Niggle looked up and fell off his bicycle. Pop. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished. And he goes on to say, it was like it was alive. Everything was even better than he thought it was gonna be. And what had happened is his little contribution, his little seed that he planted, ended up not disappearing and burning up and turning to ash, but rather in the resurrection, in the new creation, in the life that never ends, growing into the tree, not just that he painted, but that he had in his mind, and even better. And what does it say? The tree was finished, though not finished with. The deposit of the seed grew into this mighty thing in the resurrection that he actually, there was no sense of it being unfinished, but yet it was not finished with. There was still work for him to do. There was continuity, all because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything matters because of Christ. Everything you do for him, every seed you scatter in faith, it will grow beyond your wildest imaginings, even if your contribution is just a little leaf, just your garden plot, okay? And conversely, if you do not come to Christ and you are still dead in your sins and trespasses, trying to make it before God, or if you don't believe in a God, just to make it until the heat death of the universe, all of your contributions, buildings named after you, I don't care what you do, ash. You ever seen a log just burned up to cinder? That will be all that remains, like Ozymandias, king of kings, all that remains. And yet, if you're in Christ, every seed that you plant by faith, it will grow. You will reap a harvest, Paul says. Persevere, be patient, come to Christ. There is only one gospel. This is the beautiful letter of Galatians that Paul wrote for us. Let's pray. Father, uh, I have no words We are so thankful for the deposit that has been entrusted to us in your word, in the scriptures, by which we might know you truly. Through faith, as your Holy Spirit comes to bear and puts your truth on our hearts. I'm so thankful for the book of Galatians, especially preceding this five-week march through remembering the Reformation and remembering that you are constantly calling us, as Kara said earlier, to repentance, to lives of repentance, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the archegos of our faith, our captain. We, uh, we love you because you first loved us. And if we are not in that place yet, would you bring us to that place as only you can? Lord, I beg you, I thank you. I thank you for this family. I thank you for making us a family. I pray that you would increase this tribe, that you would bring in those from afar, from other nations that are in this area, Lord, that don't know you, that don't know the wonder of your love for us through Jesus Christ, unearned, undeserved, freely given. Would you do it, Lord? Would you grow us in Christ, away from self-dependence, onto dependence in you? We bless you. Help us to do good work for all of our lives to be worshiped, not just Sunday, Help us to gather in order to scatter as your church broadcast in the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.